There are stories of a man who performed miracles, who walked on water, who healed people, and who claimed he was the Son of God. The stories of his baptism, his disciples, his death, and his resurrection have echoed throughout history. His stories have changed hearts, transformed lives, and brought the dead back to life. But they aren't just stories. This man, this Jesus, came for one reason and one reason only, to reconcile humanity with the God of the universe. When we read his stories in the Bible, they aren't just stories. They're an account of a love so big, so ferocious, that even death couldn't overcome it. The stories that live in the pages of scripture become real when we've met Jesus, when we've seen Jesus, when we know Jesus personally and understand he's not just a man in a storybook. He's our living, breathing atonement for sin, the personification of the love of God and our only hope of salvation. This morning we're looking at the question, who is Jesus? And so as we do that, as we sing these songs, allow that question to be answered. As we look into, into our scripture text this morning, Jesus, the Son of God, our risen Savior, let's stand and worship him this morning. I searched the world, and it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. Then you came along and put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied here in your love. Oh, there's nothing.
One name is time. 
Continue to worship our risen Lord, our exalted one. Do that by uh, giving our tithes and our offerings this morning. Let me pray, and then ushers come and receive the morning offering. Lord Jesus, we bow at your footstool this morning, for you are on your throne, and you are the exalted one over all. And we worship you, our risen Savior and Lord. You are the Savior of the world, and we thank you for all that you've done for us. We give now as an act of worship and out of obedience to you. Bless in Jesus' name. Amen.
outstretched arms we praise the Savior of the world. Jesus is alive, the stone was rolled away. Our hope is built upon an empty grave. We praise the Savior of the world. We praise the Savior of the find your way over to Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, we will be taking a look at Peter's sermon this morning and how he presented the gospel with that. Charles Spurgeon once said, and I quote, the gospel is preached in the ears of all men. It only comes with power to some. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach till our tongues rotted, till we should exhaust our lungs and die. But never a soul would be converted unless there were mysterious power going on with it, the Holy Ghost, changing the will of man. O sirs, we might as well preach to stone walls as preach to humanity unless the Holy Ghost be with the Word to give it power to convert the soul. We have to understand that the Gospel message has power because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we are just blabbering fools. Some blabber more than others. John Wesley once said this, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. Such alone will shake the gates of hell. And that's a powerful statement. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Then preach it. Because that is the message of the church. When we think about why the church even exists, the church exists not as a social club, as some would think, not as a political activist group, as some would make it out to be, but the church exists for the preaching of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit to convey the message of God's love to a people that are dying and going to hell, declaring the message that Jesus saves And by accepting His love and His forgiveness, you can be saved. That's the message of the church. That's the mission of the church. God gave His promise to the church to be empowered. There is an audience that we are to preach to that is unaware of their depravity. Would you agree with that? There are people, uh, prior to knowing Christ, prior to the power of the Holy Spirit working in me, I didn't know what a dirty, rotten sinner I was. The problem is, now I do know. And it grieves my heart. But there is an audience out there that doesn't know. It's kind of like a fish. It doesn't know it's wet. It's the environment it lives in. Until you pull it out of the water. (laughs) We think about this. 
That is our goal, is to be able to preach the gospel, to, to have the power of God pull people out of their condition of sin. And they don't know that their condition that they're in until they're presented the gospel and the power of the gospel of the work of the Holy Spirit that is in them. And God gave the promise to provide salvation to anyone, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You think about your family members and your friends. Those that don't know the Lord. Are you preaching to them? You should be. You should be. be it's the work of God that brings them to, to life. Jesus is God's Savior. That man killed. That God raised from the dead. To provide salvation to everyone that would believe. That's the foundation of the gospel message. And upon believing, we're given the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. You're not saved just to get into heaven. God didn't provide you fire insurance. God provided you eternal life, but He also gave you a message that needs to be proclaimed to those that are perishing. Now, it's going to seem like foolishness to them. But that's okay. It was foolishness to you prior to the work of the Holy Spirit working in you. And then the light went on. The, God opened your eyes to your understanding. And so we're going to be taking a look at how the church gathers together here and the power of the Holy Spirit and the people that are saved. As a background, when we think about where we're at in this passage, we have Jesus ascending into heaven and leaving about 120 believers that are spending about a week in this place, this, this house, where the, they were meeting earlier, this upper room area, and, so, and fulfilling the promise where they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promised them, He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. And so within that, last week we studied how the disciples had received the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And they began proclaiming the good works of God in languages that all of the people that had gathered in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost, proclaiming in a language that they could understand. And if you remember the map, it was the whole known world. There were witnesses to the world right there in Jerusalem. God brought the world to them and gave them the power to be witnesses there, to tell of the good works. But that wasn't the gospel message. The gospel message is more than just the good works of God, more than just the testimony. The apostolic gospel that was being preached in the early church was called the Kerygma. And it was the gospel that centered on Jesus Christ, Him crucified, rose again. That is the centrality of the gospel, and Peter's going to give it to us. It's interesting that Peter, being the one that denied Jesus, how many times? Three times. He's the guy that, remember, he was by the fire, a little girl comes up and says, I know you're with him. He goes, oh, no, I'm not. And he freaked out. This is the same guy that stands up with the eleven and begins preaching. How do you go from zero to hero? Power of God. The work of the Holy Spirit. Peter's sermon is confronting the Jews that are all there, and he is bold in his preaching. He calls them murderers. And not just any murderer. You are murderers of the Messiah. 
your Messiah. Now, we don't get that, but from a Jewish construct, it would have pierced their hearts. And we'll unpack that in a moment. You say, well, what was the importance of the speaking in tongues? It was an object lesson. Billy Graham, many years ago, would give a method on preaching the gospel. I, I, I had the opportunity a lot of years ago to go to uh, a seminar. It's called Billy Graham School of Evangelism. It was on Monterey. And Wendy and I had gone to it. And one of the things that he said, he said, when you're presenting the gospel message, you, you want to look for the hook. The hook, the attention getter. The, something, the thing that is going to draw them in to be able to present the gospel. Well, the gift of tongues... This, this miracle of all these people speaking in these languages that were known was the hook. And it would get people asking the question, where did this power come from? And then Peter, boom, gives the gospel message. One of the things that I used to do as a youth pastor down in Huntington Beach was we would take the kids to evangelize out on the boardwalk. If you've ever been there, there's a, there's a large... Uh, concrete or asphalt area that's along the, the beach. They call it the boardwalk. It's not made out of boards, asphalt. But um, We would get the kids together, and so I would teach them evangelism. They, and I would teach them to do a 30-second, a 60-second, and a two-minute testimony. Some people's testimonies go on for hours, but most people don't have that much time. So what we would do is I would get all of our youth group together, and then one person speak, and so what ends up happening when a crowd forms? People are what? Why is there a crowd forming? So all these people would come around, and then the student would be given the message, and then the, stu- the other students would be looking around like they were clueless, you know, like clued in. And then after they would give the message, then the crowd would break up, and then we would talk with them. Well, imagine 120 people blabbering around in these languages that are known. All these foreigners are going, where does the power of this come from? How did this happen? And Peter has the opportunity to say, let me tell you how it happened. To be able to do that. So we're going to dive right in. Uh, our passage this morning is quite long. It's uh, 14 to 47. I'm going to ask that you stand. And we are only going to read, because I am being nice to you, <laughs> verses 37 to 47, which is actually the conclusion of uh, what happened after Peter's sermon. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it says, Now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And so then those who had received the word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and the possessions, and they were sharing them with all, and as anyone might have need. 
day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So how did they get there? How did they get to this place where this massive revival, this new work, the birth of the church was taking place? They got there because believers were preaching the gospel. If you want revival, and you should, preach the gospel. You say, well, I can't. Oh, yes, you can. It's a matter of will you. Peter stood up with the eleven to preach. If you take a look at verse 14, it says, But when Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice, declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you live in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet of Joel. So what did Peter do? Well, he and the eleven stood up. They took their position in the temple courtyard, and Peter began to preach gathered attention to himself and said, look it, this is something that's special. Now, how did Peter do that? The power of the Holy Spirit had come upon him. He was internally energized to externally speak out the Word of God. Now, did the Holy Spirit have a conversation with him ahead of time, say, okay, Peter, now you need to go do this, now Peter, no. He just did it. He just did it. He began to open his mouth and the power would flow through him. You have control of your mouth. You do. It could be a doorway that is open or a doorway that is shut. But when you begin to speak and, and, and preach and to share and declare the goodness of God and are relying on the Holy Spirit to do that work, God's going to guide your, your, your thoughts. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that drew Peter up and he knew that it was his purpose. It was what he was waiting for. They had seen the signs. They had seen the tongues. He, he knew it was the timing because of the work of the Holy Spirit. He was unified with the disciples, which is a miracle in itself for this group of guys to get along together. And it's interesting because what does he do first? He goes after those that were trying to discredit the ministry. If you remember in the speaking of tongues in the previous verses, they said, well, you know, it, they're drunk. That's why they're able to do this. I've known a lot of drunk people in my mind and in my days and been around them. And I may or may not have been one at one time. I can tell you when you're drunk, you don't make any sense. These guys were making sense. And Peter needed to address these skeptics that were there, that were accusing this as being ridiculous. He says, look it, it's 9 a.m. They're not drunk. Even in that culture to be drunk at 9 a.m., and I mean, in our culture, it's not so much a big deal, but in their culture, it would be, nobody would do that within that. And so he refutes the accusation. But what he does do is he makes it a fulfillment and he, he brings them to the fulfillment of God's prophecy in Joel. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, and you can read about it, but he quotes it here. 
within this. The reason why they're able to speak this out is because it's the outpouring of the Spirit of God. God had intended that when His Spirit would come, it would be a sign that would precede His coming. It would be something that people would know. It would be something incredible. And so he quotes this prophecy of Joel in 17 to 21. He says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Question, are you seeing visions or are you dreaming dreams? Are you old or are you young? I'm still seeing visions, so I'm good. So, at any rate. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, and I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall, what? Prophesy. I will grant wonders in the sky above and the signs of the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and the glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. How do I know it's the day of salvation? God's Spirit is going to be revealed in a magnificent way. Now, Joel's prophecy was preaching this impending judgment that was about to take place. And the impending judgment was coming because of the rebellious of, of man's sin. It was originally given after a plague of locusts that had ravaged the land within that. And he was calling for all the people to get together, to repent, and to pray that God would provide restoration. Why? Because the land was about to be destroyed. Hmm. Does that sound like something? Are we in the days where our lands are about to be destroyed? We're in horrendous days. And you say, Lord, what should we do? Well, we're given the answer. Repent and be saved. I can tell you this. We will not save this planet. This planet is going to burn. So, so you say, well, Carrie, should we give up? No, we shouldn't give up. We should be good stewards. But what's more important than the planet, the trees, and the rocks? The souls of people. That's where our energy needs to go. Joel called the people together to repent and pray that God would provide restoration. Why? Because God had given to them the land, the seed, and the blessing within this. God also promised a Messiah to establish a kingdom on earth. Within that, the Spirit would be given to them in such a way that they would see the sign of people seeing dreams and visions. And if you notice in the reading of Joel, it didn't matter who you were. Rich or poor, male or female, young or old, it didn't matter. The Holy Spirit was going to be poured out on people equally and in a very diverse way. And they were going to be able to see some amazing things in preparation for the Messiah to come. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for a Savior that was going to come and save them in their land, the Jews within that land, to establish the kingdom and the king. So we've got to get out of our Western mindset for a minute when we think of like Congress and presidents and all of that stuff. I can tell you this, Messiah is not voted in. The Messiah is appointed by God. His name is Jesus. 
But in this, the Jews were looking for their Messiah, one man that was going to come and he was going to solidify the nation, reestablish a kingdom, and bring peace into the land and prosperity. So they were looking for a very temporal position. They didn't really have the construct of looking for an eternal Messiah. And the Jews had been looking for a very, very long time. Joel had prophesied that the Spirit would come out, and so Peter says, this is what's happened. These 120 people that have received the gift of speaking, being able to do this, this is the prophecy fulfilled, at least the first half within this. Pay attention. In these days, we are seeing signs. Are we not? The signs of the times. Pay attention. Because the signs are revealing how close we are to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Through economics, world powers, and all of these things, it is happening in our time. We need to pay attention to these signs. The last part of Joel's prophecy was the apocalyptic events. They pick up here these great wonders, verses 19 to 21, of the sky, the signs on the earth, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood. These are the apocalyptic events that Joel speaks of in the apocalypse or the end times, a great tribulation. Do we see rumblings of that today? Sure we do. Absolutely we do. Cataclysmic events. We see droughts in places and fires in places and earthquakes and all of these different things. And these are just birth pains preceding that time. But when it happens, I can tell you this is the church. We're not going to be here. Praise God. But when that happens, it's going to be a terrible day when men are going to be calling for the mountains to fall on them. Get me out of here. And the judgment's going to come. Now imagine being these hearers of this message where Peter is quoting this and said, this first set of signs are here and we're seeing them. And they're blown away. The sky's not turned to blood yet. Would that begin to strike terror in you? Absolutely it would. So they're being set up in Peter's sermon to pay attention to these cosmic signs. Quickly, before these cosmic signs happen, you need to be saved. Within this. And so he's setting them up by quoting Joel and not misquoting him. He was accurate in his quotation and his understanding of the prophecy. Because he wanted to get to verse 21 of Joel's prophecy everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, if you want to avoid that, then call upon the name of the Lord now and be saved. If you want to avoid destruction, Eternal hellfire, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Because that is the destiny for those that are apart from Christ, for sure. And so Peter, in this empowered preaching, preaches the Messiah and is calling people to be saved. What else does he do? Well, he preaches the gospel that is based on Jesus. Preaching a gospel based on fear doesn't really provide solutions It leans into manipulation. But preaching the gospel based on Jesus provides the solution and the understanding that Jesus paid the price for your sin and that is how you are saved. I know I want to be saved, but how can I be saved? 
What is the foundation that I, of my salvation? And so he gets into the foundation. The gospel message needs to have a foundation for salvation. And there is no other name but Jesus. In 22 to 32, he goes on, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And he quotes David. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, and he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One, to undergo decay. Notice the hope. Circle 27. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us today. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath, to seat one of his descendants on the throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are witnesses. Notice what he says within this. He starts in verse 22, and then in 32, he speaks what name? Jesus, creating an inclusio, bracketing. The center of Peter's gospel message is based on Jesus Christ and tells the story, the account of Jesus coming in the flesh, incarnate, dying across death and rising again, declaring that Jesus saves, answers the question, who is this Jesus? Notice he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Why Jesus of Nazareth? Why would he use Jesus of Nazareth? Because it's who they knew. Keep in mind, the hearers of Peter's sermon knew Jesus of Nazareth. This was only 50 days after the death and resurrection within this period of time. They knew of him. Nazareth was a real place. Jesus, a real person. And the hearers knew him. They knew of that, that testimony of this Jesus that was there, the testimony of this Jesus of Nazareth that had risen again within this. This, this man who is God incarnate. How do we know he is God incarnate? Because Peter says God affirmed who he was through signs and miracles. The power that was through Jesus to perform signs and miracles and raise the dead and to do everything that he had done was affirmation from God in heaven that he is the Messiah because he was fulfilling everything that prophecy said the Messiah would do, including giving sight to the blind, which no one had ever done. 
they knew the signs, they knew the miracles, they knew that Jesus was more than a prophet, but he was the Jewish Messiah. Now, again, you've got to get out of your Western mindset and think about this. If you're a Jew, and for generation upon generation upon generation, you've been looking for your Messiah. And then Peter drops the hammer on him, and he says, and you killed him. You killed him. He placed the weight of Jesus' death upon these Jews and said, you killed the one that all generations were looking for. You rejected him and you killed him. Now the hearers would have said, well, we really didn't kill him. It wasn't our fault. We didn't have the hammer in our hand. No. Again, whatever the Jews did, they did together. Collectively. They say, well, it was the Jews' fault. The Jews did it. Oh no, not just the Jews. Who were the godless men that Peter speaks of? They were the Romans. So, okay. Romans were at fault. Well, Romans are just Gentiles like you and I. Uh-oh. That means that the Jews were guilty and the Gentiles were guilty. Peter, what are you saying? All mankind is guilty of the death of Jesus. We have the guilt of Jesus' death upon us. Why? Because it is for our sins that He died. Every single one of us. We could try to blame God. I mean, God's always a good one to blame, isn't He, when things are going bad? God, you predestined it. It was your plan. No. It's God's predestined will that Jesus would die for your salvation. Well, if we can't blame the Jews, we can't blame the Romans, i got to blame myself. i got to blame myself. Because it was for my sin that Jesus died. My sin. Your sin. Because it is the only way for you to be redeemed. God loves you that much that Jesus would become sin who knew no sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. We are guilty of Jesus' death. It is our sin that drove the nails into His hands, into His feet. We cannot avoid the responsibility of the death of Jesus Christ. We cannot avoid our guilt and our shame. But, there are certain buts in the Bible I like. I like this one. But, God raised Him from the dead. God raised Jesus up. Jesus rose again and did not remain in the grave, but three days later rose again and conquered death so that we might live, being the first fruits of that, that life. The text says that God loosed him from the agonies of death, the birth pains. The Hebrew phrase 
would, would align itself. And the cords of death are broken by God. In other words, if you imagine a person that dies, they're entangled by these ropes of death that pull them down into Hades. There was this construct that they had this idea. And God sat down and broke those cords of death that pulled a person down into Hades and set them free. And the cords of death are broken. Regardless of what evil men might do, God is greater. Regardless of what sin tells you, whatever guilt Satan wants to throw on you, God is greater. Why? Because it's impossible for death to have victory over Jesus. It is impossible. And Jesus conquered death and declared His promise. What was the promise He declared? Well, He, he quotes... Out of Psalm 16:18, for David says, I saw the Lord always in my presence and he's at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will not or will live in hope because you will not abandon note my soul in Hades. In David's mind, he says, God, I know you're greater. And I know you will not leave me in Hades, which is the abode of the dead. God, you've got a plan, and you're not going to leave me there. I know at some point I'm going to die, but you're not going to leave me there. That there is going to be a resurrection. And you will not suffer your Holy One, the Messiah. David was looking ahead. He was looking ahead to a Messiah, a Savior. Did he have all the theology he needed? No. He had simple faith. God, you love me. And you're not going to leave me in hell. You're going to provide a way out. And I believe that way out is through a Savior who will also die and rise again. You think about David's faith and how incredible it was. And his hope. What was it based on? The character of God. What he knew about God. And so he writes this psalm. Speaking about this hope in God's promise and redemption. This holy one that doesn't undergo decay. Why is that special? Because Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of resurrection. If by faith you've been placed into Christ, just as Jesus rose again three days later, and you're in Christ, you are living in that resurrection. Note, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, notice, in Christ, data, in Christ, in Christ we will all be what? Made a, made a what? Thank you. Now you're alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. There is a resurrection hope that we all have that keeps us going. And that's our confidence. God is not leaving our souls abandoned. God is not going to leave you abandoned. When you shed this thing we call a body, which is really a good thing, God's not going to abandon you in hell, but He is, gives you a resurrection hope. And as Paul would say, to be absent from the body is present with who? The Lord. 
And it's that hope that gives us that confidence with Him. And Peter explains that hope. And then he says, well, how do we know for sure? Well, because we've seen Him. This Jesus, we are all witnesses. This Jesus, God raised Him again. Verse 32, we are those witnesses. This is the message that He is empowered to preach. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, says, After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but have fallen asleep. To Peter's audience. To Peter's audience. I've got 500 witnesses you can go talk to right now that have seen Jesus alive. Now imagine this audience hearing this. Okay, we're gathered in Jerusalem. we got this whacked out group of people, 120, that are all speaking in my language, telling me about the good works that God has done. i got this guy that's preaching about this Messiah that we killed, that rose again. How do we prove it? Okay, he's got a list over here. I can go check it out. And they can go talk to them if they choose. To be able to believe. There are more than 500 witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. It's called the church. We walk in the power of the Spirit, the confidence of the resurrection, the transformed life. You are witnesses, empowered. And the world out there needs to hear from you. Furthermore, Peter goes on in his sermon, 33 to 36. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. This is the explanation of the tongues. This is what you see. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is Jesus whom you crucified. Not only is Jesus the Messiah, but he is Lord. He is Lord. Now, this would have been amazing for the Jews to hear because they didn't have this construct of having a Messiah King, this Lord that would exist in heaven. They were looking for the temporal. And so Peter brings in the ascension. The ascension and the Spirit of God that comes, it's fulfilling God's promises. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our salvation. The presence of the Holy Spirit that comes upon you at your conversion when you are born again is the down payment that holds you until you get to see Jesus. Walks with you. Peter's quoting Psalm 110.1, proving that Jesus' ascension is planned and necessary. And then the sending of the Holy Spirit would come when Jesus would leave. Proving that, that Israel was guilty. Now, if you were a hearer of this sermon, how would you respond? How would you respond? Well, here's the work of the Spirit and here's what we read earlier in verse 37. The gospel that he gave pierced their hearts. Notice, when they heard this, their hearts were pierced. A piercing just to make you feel bad? No. When God breaks your heart over your sin, it is the first step of redemption. If your heart doesn't break over your sin you will not be moving into the place of restoration. 
What's necessary is our hearts break. The gospel pierced the hearts of the hearers, literally wounded their conscience to the place where they said, what shall we do? When you're broken, the only question that you can ask out to God and cry out to God is, what can I do? Save me. Save me within that. So Peter describes the four steps. The four steps to salvation in verses 38 to 40. First of all, repent. The Greek word is metaneo. It means to turn. To turn away. Metaneo. It means to turn away from your sin. To repent from your sin is to turn away. And it implies a confession. What must we do is the implied confession. I know that I have sinned. I have wronged God. What must I do? To confess your sin is, means literally to say the same thing about your sin that God says. To agree with Him. Yes, I have sinned. Yes, we have killed the Messiah. What must we do? And repentance is personal. Notice how He says, nationally you are guilty. Each one of you must respond. You can't say, okay, well we've committed this national sin, so it's up to the government to repent. No. It's up to you. Each one of you. So we repent. What's the next thing you must do? Confess. Well, where is their confession? For the Jewish culture, baptism is their confession. By being baptized, and it wasn't something new, but being baptized means that you were outwardly expressing the inward condition. In other words, you were being baptized in the name of... In John's baptism, it was repentance. But here, it's in the name of Jesus. By being baptized in the name of Jesus, what you were saying is, I am confessing that Jesus is my Lord and Savior through the action of baptism. The repentance begins inside. Baptism is the outward testimony, the public confession. Baptism is also that sign of inclusion. For what? Forgiveness of your sins. In the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. What are you saying? You're saying, I, I identify that Jesus is my Lord of Savior, and He is the one that forgives my sins. I've turned from my sin. Jesus saves me from my sin. I will follow Him in that forgiveness and that newness of life. Proclaimed through baptism. Baptism does not save you. Baptism declares that you are saved. Salvation comes through faith. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's a what? Gift of God. Romans 10.9 and 10 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses salvation. What's the fourth step? The giving of the Holy Spirit. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. When do you receive the Holy Spirit? Upon conversion. It is, it is the element of, of assurance that he gives to you. And lastly, Peter says, how long... Will this opportunity last for this generation, the next generation, and the next generation? It's a promise and opportunity that God has given. 
Why? Because we live in perverse generations. The church is being pulled out of perverse generations. We are not called to live with the world and in the world, but we are called out of the world to evangelize the world. To be called out and be separate, and you are empowered to do that. So then, great. Now I am in the body of Christ. Now I'm saved. Now I'm in this fellowship. How shall I live? Well, how did the early church live? Peter gave the sermon, and over 3,000 people got saved. In Jerusalem at that time, it is estimated that over 55,000 people was the average population of the city of Jerusalem. During a festival, they could have upwards to 180,000 people that would come in. 3,000 people in one day come to faith. And this population grows. You think about the passage that, Je- that Jesus said in John fourteen twelve. Truly I say to you that he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do, and greater are the works that he will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. What is the greater works than salvation? It's greater in quantity. Do you realize Peter in one day, through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, added 3,000 people? Jesus, in three years of ministry, added 120? Greater. Not in... Quality, but quantity within this. So what did they do? Four things. They continued in discipleship, being devoted to the teaching of the disciples. Fellowship, living with one another with a common purpose. Worship, breaking of bread together, and prayer. What is the church meant to do? Evangelize. And as we are evangelizing, then how should we live? Together. Both in discipleship, fellowship, worship, and prayer. That is the mission and the ministry of the church. And allow the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. Because if you notice at the end of the text, they were all praising God, having favor with the people. And the Lord was what? Adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. God does the work. I save no one. Neither do you. I am a conduit by which the Holy Spirit flows through to speak out the words of God in order for God to do that work. If we want to see revival, church, then get out of the house and start speaking the word of God. And speak it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't give people your opinion. Give them Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. And we will see amazing things happen. Believers are called to preach the gospel. Now you know the gospel. Share it. And maybe this morning, this is the first time you've heard this gospel. Maybe this morning you realized that it was for your sin that Jesus died. And you're sitting here and asking the question, what must I do to be saved? Repent, confess, be baptized, be filled with the Spirit. I'll tell you what's simple. Your repentance and confession is the first step. God does the rest. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you've given to us this opportunity 
of salvation. You've given to us a hope and a future. And you've given us a path unto righteousness and to, and to being saved. Lord, I pray for those that are here, that first and foremost, that for the church, that you would pour out your spirit afresh, that they would speak with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ and focus on that message and that message alone. But Lord, I also pray for those that are here this morning. And I'm speaking to you who have had your hearts pierced. You realize the depths of your depravity. And it was for your sin that Jesus died. And you're asking, what shall I do? Repent. Right now where you're seated, whether you're here or watching online, decide to turn away from your sin. Confess that sin to God. Saying the same thing that God would say about that sin. Put your faith and trust in Jesus as Savior. When you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. And the Holy Spirit will come in and dwell within you. As we close with this song, meditate on the words of this song, the message of God's Word, and may the Holy Spirit have His way upon you.
have an open invitation to come to his altar surrendering your life I tell you what what you give up is nothing like what you'll get God will give you that new life I want to invite you if you're looking for prayer maybe this morning you've decided to to ask that question what must I do to be saved I would love to talk with you Let me pray this out. God, I thank you. I thank you for the privilege of being called children of the Most High. That, God, you have given to us a hope that, as David would say, our souls are not going to be left in Hades, but redeemed and present with you. Lord, as we go out today, may we go with that full confidence. And I pray for those that are struggling to have that confidence of faith, to know forgiveness, to know that new life. Lord, may they seek you. May they come to that altar and know, Lord Jesus, that you paid the the price for their sin, the penalty for their sin. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts. Open our lips that we might preach the gospel, a gospel centered on Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.